Good morning, Crossway. This morning's sermon text is from Matthew 26, starting in verse 21. And they were eating, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would, be, would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the very word of the living God. Well, we have a couple guest speakers coming in. James is going to speak to us next week, and then after that we have a guest preacher coming in. So this is going to be kind of like part one of a two-part sermon that won't be finished till June. Um, I, I say that because like, as we look at the text in front of us, we're starting to get to the place where Matthew is covering a lot of material of Jesus' life. In other words, he's writing a lot, but it's a very condensed window of time. Jesus is... In that final uh, night with his disciples, he's heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be arrested in that garden. He'll be taken to Annas' house. Uh, Annas is probably the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Uh, he is going to be taken from one house to the other. He's going to be tried at both. He is going to be taken at dawn to the Sanhedrin. He's going to be tried there. Then he'll be handed to Pilate. He'll be tried before Pilate, who punts him to Herod, who punts him back to Pilate. And all of that, Jesus is suffering. And then he's taken out to the cross, maybe a little bit before midday Friday. He is tortured and crucified there on the cross, and he dies before sundown. Matthew takes chapters to cover that. It's the most intense focus in terms of timeline that we have of any of the life of Jesus. Often it's covered during the Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, uh, during the holiday calendar that we have. Uh, so we don't often spend time in the text on a normal Sunday. But if you look in this text, I want to I take a, a, a prophetic word about Jesus from Isaiah 53 and show you this text, show you how it comes alive. Isaiah 53, listen carefully. He was despised and rejected by mankind. 
He is despised and rejected by mankind. Maybe you could title this text, Our Lonely Savior. If you were to pile up all of the injuries you've received in life, my guess is the ones that last longest, hurt the most, are the ones inflicted by people, not circumstances, events, or disease. Our deepest wounds are often done by those who love us most or we love most. We come to this passage where Jesus is getting ready to enter into this moment of suffering for our sakes. And we start in verse 21. They're eating. This should be a meal of fellowship. This is a time of togetherness. This is Oh, maybe like a family sitting down for Christmas Eve dinner. This is a time of of sweetness. There's a spiritual uh, weight to the night. But there's something much more going on here as we see our lonely Savior walk this path. Look in verse 21. Jesus begins to prophesy as they're eating truly. I say, one of you will betray me. Four times Matthew has that word betray in this text. They were sorrowful and began to say, one after another, is it I? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in this dish with me. Now, it's not like two people, Jesus and Judas, dip their hand. It's like handing around a, a bread with, or a bread, a bread with bowl in it, a bowl with bread in it. And, and as they're all taking, he goes, someone who's taken out of this dish will betray me. And all of a sudden, you can see them doing the calculus. I'm sure someone there at the table is like, I didn't take any of it. I'm not, not me. But they, they all are, are, are recognizing it could be them. Look, look at what it says in verse 22. Is it I, Lord? So here he is with his closest friends, men he's walked with for three years, and he's, he knows who his betrayer is. He says, hey, one of, one of you is going to stab me in the back metaphorically. All right, listen, one of you is going to betray me. Look at verse 23 then. He who has dipped his hand in this dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Uh, It's possible that Jesus is referencing a prophetic fulfillment from Psalm 41 verse 9 where it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, certainly we don't want to overemphasize something the Scripture doesn't emphasize. But Judas has spent three years with Jesus. Jesus has poured ministry into him. Jesus has cared for him. Jesus has instructed him. The Lord has preached to him. The Lord has prayed with him and probably for him. He cares about Judas. And he's eating with Judas as one of his close friends. And Judas, even in these moments, has already set in motion his betrayal. Now, Jesus, being the one who knows what's coming, certainly wouldn't feel the surprise of the betrayal. But I think Matthew's pointing out how damaging it is, but the word betray. You don't betray an enemy. You attack him. You betray a friend. But as we continue on, Jesus continues this discourse of his loneliness. 
He institutes the Lord's Supper, this this supper we call communion because it speaks to the unity we have together, this togetherness. Immediately on finishing the communion service with his disciples, look with me in verse 30. They sing a hymn, and they go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus says, you will fall away because of me this night. So, so they've just done this, this sweet Lord's Supper, the first one ever, this, this declaration of unity. What is Jesus immediately turning his mind to? You're going to all deny me. I don't know how alone Jesus felt, but Matthew wants us to see it. Look again in the text. Verse 31, Jesus says, you will all fall away. All of you. Why? Because of me. I don't know that we see that well. Why are they going to fall away? Because of the Lord himself. In fact, he continues on. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is taken from Zechariah 13, where God appoints his shepherd. Israel's had bad shepherds. And then there's Jesus, the true and good shepherd that the Lord appoints And when he gets struck, Zechariah says, the sheep will scatter. But you can picture this in a literal fulfillment idea. If you were to picture a a shepherd who who falls asleep on the job and the sheep have no leadership and they just kind of wander all over the hillside and are subject to any danger or any problem. Now here, the the idea of getting struck, Jesus is clearly referring to his arrest and and impending death, and he says, when this happens, the sheep will be scattered. And then he tells them, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answers him, though they all fall away, because of you, I will never fall away. I kind of wonder if Peter hadn't said that, if Jesus would have just let this go. Jesus presses in and says, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You know, they're walking out and it's late in the evening at 10 p.m. Jesus has just said, you're going to deny me three times before the morning dawns. Peter, with absolute confidence, says, never going to happen. I would die for you, he says. Look in verse 35. Peter says to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So it's not just Peter. All of them. So, so like as we're walking through the course of events, Jesus begins in the supper to say, one of you will betray me. They're all grieved. Now we move forward a little bit, and Jesus just keeps pressing this concern that not only is there going to be someone who betrays out of this group of 12 men, but all of the other 11 will walk away from him and leave him alone. They will deny him. Peter, with absolute confidence, says, I will never deny you. I will go down to the grave with you. I am your friend. I will be by your side. I am loyal to you to death. Jesus says, no, you're not. Three times you'll be given an opportunity to be loyal to me and you'll deny me. 
Now, I can only imagine the type of betrayal that a person might feel if they were to see a family member say, I never want to see or hear from you again and walk out the door and close it behind them. This is the type of betrayal that is deep and painful for the Lord. It is interesting to know that Jesus has already paid for Peter. Prayed for Peter. I don't know if I said that well. Luke says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's something interesting in this. Jesus knows that Peter will deny him, but Satan is shooting for more. Satan wants Peter to totally, permanently reject him. Right? Jesus prays for the protection and the security of Peter so that while Peter stumbles, he does not permanently reject or renounce his Savior. In fact, Jesus tells him, you're going to come back. You're going to return. Bring the others with you. Help them to be restored. It is probably worth an entire consideration, I think, of the, of the restoration moments where Jesus walks Peter through the restoring of his relationship, where he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter has, at least in Jesus' words, been prophesied to deny him three, three times. You see in a few, chat, or a few verses he does that. And the recovery is likewise a three times recovery. So now we have Jesus betrayed by one of his closest friends. Jesus is abandoned by his closest friends. Jesus is now going to be praying alone. We keep seeing our lonely Savior. Look with me in verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, means the olive press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Look at this little word here. Watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all resonate with that sentence, don't we? We want to do a lot for our Savior. There's a lot of things we want to do in life, and we just don't have that internal power to accomplish it. So we can sympathize with the apostles. But there's these little catches in here where Jesus is saying something like, pray with me. And then as he comes and finds them sleeping, he says, couldn't you pray with me? Which means they didn't. By falling asleep, Jesus has been somewhat left alone in the middle of prayer. And maybe if we're to try to sympathize with what is going through the heart and the mind of Christ, he knows his impending death. He knows the suffering coming. He knows that the pressure and the powers of hell are going to be set against him. And if any man were to give in, this would be the moment Jesus gives in. And he's asking for his friends to stand with him, 
to pray with him, to help him, to strengthen him. And, and he says, let's pray. Now, we know Jesus is so worked in terms of, I, I, want, I want to be careful with the idea of anxiety, but the, the impending grief coming has so flexed on his body that he is bleeding, as it were, great, or sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Like, I have no idea what that has to do physiologically to you, that you probably have your blood vessels breaking and your skin bleeding because of the torment of soul. He's pleading to his father. He is asking for the father to be kind to him. He's asking for the father to, if there's any other possibility of redemption that doesn't include this horrific death ahead of him, if it's possible at all that this pathway be altered so he wouldn't have to die this miserable death. Where's John? His beloved disciple? He's sleeping. Have you ever felt alone in a room full of people? I've never been in a situation like this, but I can only imagine if one of my children were in a medical situation where I was nervously sitting in the emergency room. The doctor comes out and says, your daughter's passed away. No one else in the room might get it. But I'd be broken. I'd be alone in a room full of people. These are his closest friends. He's told him he's going to die. He's pouring his soul out to his father. And I've taken a nap. Couldn't you even pray with me? I know you want to. But couldn't you just stay awake and pray for me? Look at the text again. He's pleading to his father in verse 42. A second time. Verse 43, and again he found them sleeping. So leaving them again, he went away a third time. He comes back. He says, fine, sleep. Sleep, take your rest. The hour's at hand. The Son of Man is to be betrayed. Judas, who he cared for, who he fed, who he prayed for, who he preached to, betrays him. He tells the other apostles, you're going to betray me. Or deny me, excuse me. You're going to deny me. He tells Peter three times before the end of the night. Peter's response is to fall asleep. If you are told that your best friend needed you desperately, but that you would not be available for them, and you're given a 12-hour window, would you just fall asleep? When Isaiah's simple words say, he was despised and rejected. And we read through that. 
Maybe you've read it like me. Because here's how I read it. He was despised and rejected by them. You know, Scripture goes out of its way to point its finger at us as represented by the disciples and say, this is you. As we continue on in this text, look with me in verses 47 through 56. And while he was speaking, Judas came out. So he's prophesied that Judas will betray him. It should be no surprise then that Judas betrays him. Judas came out with a great crowd and swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your swords back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How then should the scripture be fulfilled? that it must be so. And then our Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Did you notice that last line there? Who left, who fled? All of them. They all left him. It's, it's possible even John Mark, who may have been here at that time, ran away. Um, we have that account in, in Mark where there's a young man with them in the garden, and he only has a blanket on him, and, and they grab the blanket. He just runs away naked rather than be caught and arrested with Jesus. I can only imagine that the sword-wielding disciple, perhaps Peter, is thinking, I'll die with Jesus. See, Jesus, I'm with you. Jesus says, put away the sword. He puts away the sword. They start to arrest Jesus. Where's Peter? The Bible says he fled. It also indicates in other gospel accounts that he was at a distance following them. That is, he was far enough away that he would not get swept up in the arrest of Jesus and taken and prosecuted with his Savior. All the disciples left him and fled. You know, it says here that another prophecy is fulfilled. Probably Isaiah 53, 12, where he is numbered with the transgressors. They come out against him as though he's a, as a robber, as a criminal, as a violent man. And he was none of that. In fact, in this moment where he's being arrested, he indicates two things that I think are, are so encouraging for us as people as we listen in to what's happening to our Savior. First, he tells them to put down the sword that this must happen. Right? This must happen. If you were to go back to chapter 16, he says, I must go to Jerusalem, and there I must be um, 
prosecuted and rejected and hurt by the, the chief priests and the scribes. This is part of Jesus' plan, excuse me, part of the Father's plan that Jesus was included in and knows about. He knows that this is going to happen, and he's obedient, not resistant. He heals Malchus's ear. That's the name of the man who had his ear cut off. Not only that, though, Jesus also says this. I could have called 12 legions of angels. Jesus gives his life up. No one takes it from him. Jesus gives himself as a sacrificial lamb, willingly. This is not an act imposed by the Father. This is not Jesus being held captive by Gentile Roman soldiers. This is Jesus giving himself away as the sacrificial lamb. But he's all alone. His disciples have left him. His friend has betrayed him. As we continue the account here, they're going to take him to the house of Caiaphas. These Mediterranean homes, often there's the house around the outside in an entry kind of portico where you would walk into a courtyard and it'd be external. You'd be in a courtyard and the house would surround you. Often these houses would be very large. And that's where you pick up the account here in verse 56. All the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? He's speaking to Jesus. What it is that these men testify against you. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face, struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And while this is going on, Peter's in the courtyard. I do find interesting that the last criticism here is a, a criticism about prophecy. Go ahead, show us your prophets. The very next lines of Matthew are prophecy fulfilled, given that night, about Peter. It's not as though Jesus was not a prophet. It's that he had no intention of prophesying to the abusing skeptic who had no interest in the things of the Lord. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now, I have got to believe that this is absolutely transparently false. He has a hillbilly accent. 
Galilee was an uneducated area of Israel, so he probably really does have... I mean, I know I say hillbilly accent, you're all thinking something very American and English, but every culture has kind of an uneducated accent if there's uneducated people groups that have any type of kind of independent living. He's not part of the household of Caiaphas. He's not a soldier. And he's sitting with a whole bunch of soldiers, and he's got a Galilean accent. They don't know him. Like, who's the strange guy with the Galilean accent who's not a soldier or part of the household? Again, no one has to do much investigation. They know that this is one of Jesus' guys. He denies it, though. I don't know what you mean. Verse 71, and then he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter apparently overhears, and again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So probably swore by heaven or hell or something like that, like I swear by the throne of God and all that is holy that I, I do not know Jesus. Something along the lines of giving an oath to show how, how, how much they should believe him. Verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I don't know that Peter's denial hurt any worse than the other apostles not being present at all. But it is not without reason that Matthew puts this in the text for us. If you're to read chapter 27, you're going to read about the crucifixion of Jesus in all its brutality. He gets pinned to a cross. He dies there a slow, torturous death of suffocation. But I want to remind you again of what Isaiah 53 says. He was a man rejected by who? He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one whom people hide their faces from, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Perhaps one of the reasons we should read texts like this and just rest in the agony of Jesus as his friends betrayed him, as his disciples deny him, as he's all alone in the garden pleading for the Father's mercy, is because we have no concept of what the wrath of God meant to Jesus a few hours later. But we've all been alone. We've all been hurt by those we love. We've all struggled and been damaged by people who sin against us, even sometimes without meaning to. But Matthew takes pains to walk us through this evening in which Jesus is going into the most pressure-filled, intense moments of his life, and everyone is gone. He stands alone. Why would the Lord give this to us for our consideration? Well, I think the most simple one is that we might love our Savior more and hate our sin. 
when you see that Jesus did this for you, that this, in some small way, was Matthew showing us how Jesus fulfilled what the angel said, when he said, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall... Oh, Matthew one twenty one. We cannot let that hang out there and not answer that strong. You must know this. This is Matthew's theme. This one named Jesus who is to be king, is not merely king. He is the one who does what with his people? She will bear a son, the angel tells Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, because that was Joseph's job. Why do you call him Jesus? Why do you call him Yahweh saves? Because he's going to save people from their sins. Jesus wasn't betrayed Because he was devout. He was betrayed because this is the plan of God for a suffering servant to pay the price of our sins. Jesus suffered not merely on the cross, but all the way up to it. And he was faithful to death. In fact, John says that all of his friends forsake him. The only one who was with him was his father. The only one. I do think that means there was a terrifying loneliness when he cries out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? I think we have to do some theological work over the coming weeks on what that means because I don't think that conflicts with the father not leaving him. But the loneliness he felt, and we're not going to read into chapter 27, but if you were to, he's not only been abandoned by all his friends, But Scripture pictures everyone in front of the cross mocking him, throwing lots for his clothes, saying, hey, if you're the Son of God, come down off that cross. The thieves next to him. The Holman translated, they were giving him abusive language. They were abusing him with their words, both of them, for a while. One of them seems to trust Christ by the end of his life. They're mocking him, they're beating him, they're abusing him. And finally, his father forsakes him. If you knew that the price of your next sin was the suffering of Jesus, but you do not know how he suffered, you lose a little bit of the energy you lose a little bit of the theological understanding of what betrayal means. But I would suggest to you that there's another application. From the outset of Jesus' ministry, he's called these men to do what? And what does the word disciple mean? He tells Peter, come, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. He calls all of them to follow him, and they seem to follow him pretty well up until then. Here's what Hebrews 13.11 says. Giving a comparison with Jesus Christ as the sacrificial lamb that was sent out of the city and burned outside of the camp in, in the sacrifice. It says, so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp 
bearing the disgrace that he bore. And when his disciples abandoned him, they abandoned him, and he was left in shame and disgrace. The rest of the New Testament, and I have not given a full coverage of the New Testament, but, but let me read a couple passages for you. 2 Corinthians 1. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. Philippians 3. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. 2 Timothy 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel. 2 Timothy 2. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus. 1 Peter 4. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I think there are a lot of us who are afraid to suffer shame, embarrassment, and loneliness. When you read Matthew 26 and 27, it is filled with shame, embarrassment, and loneliness. And the rest of the New Testament says, follow me. Share in his sufferings. Join in them. When we read the example of Christ in the gospel, it's not merely that we would say, how great and glorious is our Savior. It's also that by walking with him, we not only share in his suffering, but we share in his comfort and the glory to be revealed. There are a lot of us who want comfort. Are you willing to suffer with him to get it? There are a lot of us who think that our Christian life should not include any pain. Did you read the account of the perfect and obedient son who suffered? It's a perfect life. A life without sin does not guarantee you won't suffer. In fact, it pretty much guarantees you will suffer. I want to take you back to the thought that Jesus really clearly makes to his disciples. You will deny me. You will leave me for, like, because of my sake. We are not people that like suffering for suffering's sake. The apostles ran because of Jesus. Like, that was the central issue. They could have stayed with Jesus and suffered with him. He wasn't worth it, was what their behavior said. Again, I don't think Matthew's point, particularly because he's one of them, is simply to say, look how bad these disciples are. I don't think his point is like, Jesus suffered a betrayal, so make sure you know who your friends are. I think there's an example given here that we would see the sweet Savior willing to suffer because God had called him to this task, and he was going to pursue the glory of his Father regardless of what the suffering entailed. And now he calls us to likewise bear the cost of following God's will. And that's what it means to share in his suffering. If God has called you to suffer, then you suffer for his sake, knowing that is exactly what it means to follow in his steps. So, 
if any of you are going to be suffering anytime soon, this text should encourage you. Your high priest knows how to suffer loneliness. In fact, without being too cute, he died to cure you of it. Right? Last words of Matthew, I will never, what? Leave you. Do you know what that means to him? Who is alone and left by everyone. When he says, I will send you to the nations, you will be stoned, you will be burned, carry my message, suffer for my sake, but I won't leave you. I know what that's like to be alone. Some of you are, are in your home and feel alone. Some of you at work feel like no one else gets it. And you're suffering and you don't even know how to talk about your suffering without sounding like a complainer. You know who knows how to suffer? Loneliness. Our Savior who says, I'll never leave you. There is a bold, unashamed call that Christ gives to us to walk with him. And one of the most terrifying things that we ever flinch from is shame, embarrassment, and loneliness. And Jesus walked with courage into those fires so that he could walk with you through yours. Christians, we should be people of courage. Loneliness should not terrify us. Betrayal should not cause us to hesitate. The opinion of others is not something we need if we walk with Jesus and have his good opinion. Are you willing to walk with Christ? He knows what it means to walk alone. He knows what it is to lean on his Father for comfort. He knows what it is to obey when it's hard he knows what it is to be rejected by those who should love him. He knows what it is to be betrayed by your sweet friend. He knows what it's like to be denied by those who say they're loyal. As we look to Jesus, the author, the founder of our faith, and we follow after him, listen again to what Hebrews says. Let us then go to him outside of the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Whatever God has called you to, whether it's loneliness, whether it's um, being willing to be made fun of at work or school, or whether it's just the hard life of not being appreciated, Jesus knows and calls you to follow him. And he will be with you. Take courage. Do you think Jesus looks back and regrets his obedience? I think he wishes, loosely speaking, the disciples would not have denied him. Right? But do you think he regrets his willingness to obey his father despite their denial? Absolutely not. And neither will you be faithful to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for not merely an example, 
but the actual effective work of Christ by which in moments of suffering like this, culminating and bearing the wrath that you put on him for sin that he did not do, but we have done, that you brought and, and rescued us out of sin by putting him into the condition of being guilty and being a sinner before your courtroom. We thank you that the cost of suffering and shame purchased successfully the redemption of all of those in all of the ages who will turn in faith to you. Father, I thank you so much that you give us the example of Jesus. You don't tell us simply that he died. You tell us how he died. You explain to us how much his death cost him. You explain the small intricacies of the betrayals, the hurt, the injuries, the denials, so that we might see how sweet our Savior is. And seeing his example, we can, through the strength of the Spirit, live like our Savior, who is so good to us. Father, I pray for those that might be struggling with the cost of following you. I ask for those who are feeling the loneliness of holiness, that you would strengthen them with the comfort of Christ, that they would continue to be faithful and persevere. I ask that you would help us to be captured by the beauty of our Savior, that his pattern would echo in our hearts, that we might be like him, and that by doing this through the grace of the Spirit, we might glorify your name. Lord, we have every hope that you will do great things through the work and the power of the Spirit as he moves us and shapes us to Christ-likeness. Lord, help us to love our Savior enough to be ashamed by the world to be embarrassed by the world, to be left alone from the world. Help us to love you supremely and follow Christ as you empower us. Amen.